All right, thank you, Brian. Those of you who are in Sunday school can uh, talk to Brian after the service and give him a grade on how well he did in the music. Now we talked about uh, what music should be biblically in the worship service. They should have songs that are full of rich biblical truth, and they did, especially the two psalms that we sing. All right, if you'll turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 4. Second Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 4. I'll start in verse 3 because it's kind of in the middle of a sentence there in verse 4. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 3, and Paul's request to the brethren he says there in verse 1, we request you, brethren, that you not be quickly shaken, verse 2, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus, to not be shaken or disturbed or be thrown off. That word composure in the New American Standard is literally mind, that you not be thrown out of your mind or to be distracted or uh, thrown off base by this message or this prophecy or this letter saying that the day of the Lord which is, as we talked about, the coming of our Lord Jesus in verse 1 is the same as the day of the Lord in verse 2, that it has come or it is imminent, it is upon them. Paul says, do not be shaken or disturbed by this. And the way that he aims to prevent them being shaken or disturbed, and we see in verse 3, deceived, is to give them an order of events. You will know that the day of the Lord is upon you, Paul essentially says, when you see, verse 3, the apostasy has come, and the man of lawlessness has been revealed. So Paul's aim is to help them refrain or to be put back on their base. They're knocked off their base. They're distracted. They're, they're concerned. Paul's aim is to restore them and to prevent their deception by giving them truth. Here's what God says. Here's what God says, or the Paul says that God told him, essentially, that we see that he... When he met with them, when he was with them in Thessalonica, he taught them many things. We see in verse 5 that, God, that Paul is communicating to them what he understands from God, that the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. We talked last week what this apostasy was. We talked a little bit about the man of lawlessness, but as I mentioned last week, we're going to spend more time this week in describing the man of lawlessness, who really, we see in verse 4, uh, gets the description Paul's goal here is that they will be able to recognize this man when he appears. 
The day of the Lord is imminent, Paul essentially says, when you understand that the apostasy has happened and this man of lawlessness has been revealed. Okay, well, what does the man of lawlessness look like, Paul? Well, let me give you verse 4, he says. So what are we to look for? What are they to look for, according to Paul, in this man of lawlessness? And what are we to look for to recognize him when he comes? Well, there in verse 4, we see first, he opposes every so-called God or object of worship. This makes sense because in verse 9, it says that this man of lawlessness, the one who's coming, this man of lawlessness is coming, will be in accord with the activity of Satan. Satan, that word there in the Greek, is adversary. So it makes sense that this man of lawlessness, this man of Satan, will set himself up as an adversary or an opponent of God. He opposes every so-called God or object of worship. And then you see, more particularly, the God of gods. But notice that this is not just the true God, but all so-called gods or objects of worship. This fits neatly, and I think this is what Paul has in the back of his mind as he's writing this. This fits neatly with Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, there's a prophecy Daniel eleven thirty six and 37 says this, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. So it seems that Paul has... Daniel 11, in the back of his mind, as he says that this, this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist, will not only oppose God, the true God, but he'll oppose every so-called God, every object of worship. The Thessalonians would have had experience with what is known as the imperial cult. That is, when the Roman Caesar sets himself up as God in in competition or against all the Roman or the Greek gods. The Roman Caesar would claim divinity for himself and set up a temple for himself and require worship of himself. And so this description in Daniel 11 fits this idea of a man opposing all gods before him, all the Greek and Roman gods, and setting himself up over them. So it, it seems that, the, that Paul is, is, is referencing or... or, or um, touching or, or mentioning to the Thessalonians something that they know about, this imperial cult. The Roman Caesar had done this and had set up a temple in Thessalonica, so they understand what he's talking about. Oh, that's like Caesar, who has set himself up against all these other gods that we have worshipped before for years. Suddenly, he's making himself out to be the god over these gods. So Paul is saying that the Antichrist will do like the Roman Caesars have done. He will set himself as over all gods. And as I mentioned, they had, the Roman Caesars had done this, but we've seen this through the ages in other circumstances. Antiochus Epiphanes is one example. His, his very name, Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes means God or divine. So he's saying, I am Antiochus the divine. He famously, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, set up worship an image in the temple of Jerusalem and desecrated it. It's known in Daniel as the abomination of desolation. 
So we have instances of this happening, men setting themselves up as God over all the other gods, especially Roman emperors or leaders or kings. And so Paul is saying he's going to do the same, but he's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of that. Because the end comes after him. So he opposes every god and the god of gods, the true god. And secondly, he exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship. And this is interesting because you may, you may notice, you may realize, if you watch the news, keep up with the news, that those in power now often grasp at power, try to retain their power by appealing to the gods of the age. You ever notice that? They set themselves up as the gods' faithful servants. And you say, Joshua, we're in a secular society. I don't see Trudeau or Biden or Trump or any of these people saying, I'm going to worship the gods. But if you think about it, often they're setting themselves up as the faithful servants of the people's worship of their gods. So I'm going to, I'm going to make a better economy for you so you can buy more things. I'm going, to, I'm going to make a bigger military so that you'll feel protected, so that you'll be safe. I'm going, to, I'm, going to make it, I'm going to knock down these laws that restrict your freedom so that you can be whatever you want to be. If you're a man, you want to be a woman, fine. You define for yourself what you want. I'm going to, I'm going to make it so that this country, this government, supports you and your godness. You ever notice that people often, leaders in this world now, often grasp and try to hold on to power by serving the gods? Whether it be materialism, money, Science, technology, the earth, the climate cult, humanism, etc. So this is interesting because this man, by contrast, he does not set himself up as a servant of the gods. He sets himself up as the only true God over all other objects of worship. That should stick out when it happens, don't you think? So often these leaders that sometimes people, oh, he's the Antichrist, he's the Antichrist, they're worshiping other gods. They're pointing people to these other gods. But this man will say, I am God. Worship me. I am over all these things. I'm over the earth. I'm over all these things. I'm over the Greek gods, the Roman gods. I'm over these modern day gods that people have set up. And why does he do this? Well, he wants to dethrone God. He wants to take the ultimate place of authority in the universe. He wants to pull God down from his throne and take his place. And that's what we see here in verse 4. He takes his seat in the temple of God. And this makes sense again because he is doing, he is, he is acting in the, in the activity of Satan, in accord with the activity of Satan. That word activity there is like energy or work of Satan. And what does Satan desire to do from the beginning? Pull God down dethrone God and take his place. And so this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist, will, in the power of Satan, attempt the same. And he does this ultimately by taking his seat in the temple of God there in verse 4. Now, of course, as you can imagine, there's been some debate through church history about what this means. What does it mean that he takes his seat in the temple of God? Well, there's two popular answers to this. That you're reading, read the commentaries, they come up again and again from throughout church history. Number one, the temple that he takes his seat in is the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. So sometimes you'll hear people talking about the end times and they're looking for the temple to be rebuilt. This is one of the reasons why, because they expect the Antichrist to take his seat in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. 
For, for support for, to this view, it is cited that Antiochus Epiphanes, who I mentioned earlier, he went into the temple in Jerusalem and desecrated it. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. He sacrificed it to Zeus, and some say that he set up an image of himself in there. This is the abomination of desolation mentioned in Daniel. So people say, if that is an abomination of desolation, and we can expect another abomination of desolation, as we see Jesus talk about, then it will likely be similar. Like there will be a new temple, and this Antichrist will go into the temple and set himself up as God in that temple. Jesus describes another coming abomination of desolation when he refers to the end times in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. So that, has something to, that, that theory has something to commend it with this evidence to support it. Another view is that the temple of God that Paul references here is the church. It is the new temple of God. So they, they see how Paul references that we are the temple, that, that our body is the temple, that, that, that the church is the temple of God, the new temple of God, that he doesn't have his home in a building anymore. He is in the church. So they think that this Antichrist will come out of the church. The thinking is that the Antichrist will, of course, come out of the visible church. He's not going to be a believer. But that he is going to be a churchman or maybe the pope. As you can imagine, this became a popular view among Puritans because they were very anti-Catholic, anti-Pope. They saw the Pope, if uh, most of them saw the Pope as the Antichrist. You can see this reflected in the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession. But there's a third option I think is something that we should consider, and that is that the Antichrist will essentially, in, the, in a very similar way to the imperial cult, he will set up his own temple. It's possible that, it's, that this Greek phrase here in this verse is, takes his seat in the temple of a god, or in a god's temple. So he will set himself up as God and build his own temple to say, my temple is superior to all of these, and that is indeed what some of the Roman Caesars did. They'd said, you must worship me and superior, superior to these other gods. In fact, by law, you must worship me. To set up as a competition or in the stead of these other gods. Which one is it? I think it is most likely the first or the third option. It is either the temple will be rebuilt and the Antichrist will take his place in the temple of God in Jerusalem or that he will build up his own temple and proclaim himself God superior to the temple in Jerusalem. Could be one of those two options I think are the most likely. This displaying himself to be God at the end of verse 4 there fits with Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 15. He says, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, notice that phrase, standing in the holy place, which could also support the view that the temple is rebuilt and the Antichrist goes into the holy place where he is not meant to be. Mark 13, 14 says, Standing where it should not be. When you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be which Matthew shows us is the holy place, then Jesus says you are to flee to the mountains. So I think what Paul is saying here, and I think we've seen in 1 Thessalonians here, 1 Thessalonians and also here in 2 Thessalonians, that Paul relies a lot on Jesus' teaching on the end times. You see a lot of connections between what Jesus says about the end times and what Paul says. And so I think what Paul is saying is that when, when the man of lawlessness is revealed... Meaning, when he sets himself up and displays himself as being God, this is when you see, that this is when you know that the end is here, that you flee. Because you see Jesus say, this is when you take action. 
they're going to take you before the authorities. They're going to bring. They're going to drag you before the judges and and betray you and condemn you. But when you see Jesus says the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, flee to the mountains. So I think Paul is saying something similar here. You'll know he is the one, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, when he displays himself as being God in the holy place. Some say that this was all fulfilled in A.D. 70, when Rome came and sacked Jerusalem. But this abomination took place then. That somehow the standards of the Roman legions, which they worshipped, were carried either into the temple or to the gate of the temple. And so the abomination of desolation in A.D. 70, the final fulfillment of the abomination of desolation, was these standards that the legions carried, that they worshipped. But I don't think this is the case. I think there was no abomination of desolation in that event. I think it's a stretch to say it was these um, standards that the legions carried. I think there is an abomination of desolation yet to come, and that Daniel's prophecy has a more immediate fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes, but that there is an ultimate fulfillment to come in the Antichrist. And the main reason I say that is, again, because Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation. So he says there's an abomination of desolation to come, and then right after that, uh, the tribulation comes, and then Jesus returns in judgment. And so if this happened in AD 70, then we've had tribulation for all these years. And so I think it makes more sense to say that, that the abomination of desolation will be connected to the, the rise of the Antichrist and the beginning of the tribulation, and that Jesus' return and judgment will be the end, as we see here in verse 8, of the Antichrist. In verse 5, Paul says that he told them these things when he was with them. He says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? This is one reason why we don't have as much detail in this passage as we would like. When we come to verse 6 and 7, it says, You know what restrains him now. We're like, what restrains him, Paul? Tell us what restrains him. And then in verse 7, Only he who now restrains will do, say, do so until he is taken out of the way. So we have in verse 6, what restrains him. And in verse 7, we have who restrains him. So there's been all kinds of debate about who this restrainer is. And the reason we don't have as much detail is because Paul is, is reminding them, remember I told you these things. So he's just jogging their memories. Like, remember we talked about this. We're going to talk more about the restrainer next week when we handle verses 6 and 7 and 8. This week we're focusing more on the character of the Antichrist because I think Paul's main point in this passage is that we would see him, when he, we would understand him when he comes. There he is, we'll recognize him. So I think it's important for us to focus on what his characteristics are so that we can recognize him and not be uh, disturbed or, or deceived. So going, dropping down to verse 9, Paul goes on to describe the Antichrist. After mentioning his end in verse 8, Paul says his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Interestingly, that coming there is the same that Paul used in reference to Christ's coming, the parousia. So the coming of the Antichrist is kind of an anti-parousia or an anti-coming. He has his own coming to, to, to mock and to replace the coming of Christ. His power and coming are really Satan's power. This activity of Satan, as I mentioned, is his work or his energy. This is how he will do signs and wonders. Now, based on this verse here and a couple other things, some have theorized that this means that the Antichrist will be possessed by Satan as Judas was. You remember that Satan entered into Judas. 
And they are both called, as we saw in verse 3, sons of destruction or sons of perdition. So some have speculated that Satan will possess the Antichrist. Some have even speculated, including my dad, that the Antichrist is Judas, resurrected. Either way, uh, I think it's not necessary for us to um, know the answer to that, or, or for it, it's not necessary for him to be possessed in order to act in the power of Satan. He could be a man who essentially sells his soul to Satan. We see, all we see there in verse 9 is that his activity, his coming, his actions are all in the power or the energy or the work of Satan. So this, this, these signs and wonders that he performs are because Satan is behind him, and, and it's the, power, the supernatural power of Satan. And we can see this, like in the Old Testament, when the, the magicians of the Pharaoh were able to throw their staffs down and turn them into snakes as well. So there's kind of a supernatural demonic power. So we see this activity of Satan takes the form of counterfeit miracles. He performs signs and wonders. We see the same activity described in Revelation 13, which references the Antichrist. Revelation 13, 3 and 4. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war against him? You see the dragon giving authority to the beast. And then in a few verses later, in verses 11 through 15, we have another beast coming up. It's kind of like a false prophet who points to the Antichrist, points to the first beast, and performs great signs and wonders to deceive people so that they follow the Antichrist. This is verses 11 through 15. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he, spoke, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men and deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So you see these signs and wonders. And notice, too, that this first beast, we read it there, in verses 3 and 4, he has a fatal wound and is healed. And then this false prophet comes up and it says, he, he makes an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And so this Antichrist essentially is, is making a mockery and, and trying to replace the miracle working of Jesus and his resurrection. So in this way, he is acting as the Antichrist. He says, oh, Jesus was raised from the dead? Watch, I'll be raised from the dead, and it's going to be a trick. Oh, Jesus did miracles? Watch, I'll do miracles. So this is a mockery of Jesus' ministry and a mockery of his resurrection. This is another reason why he's called the Antichrist. Not only that he is against Jesus, but that he is, re he is seeking to replace Jesus. Replace his miracles, replace his resurrection. Now, this prophet here in, in Revelation 13 could be a reference, it could be a mocking replacement of John the Baptist, or it could be a mocking replacement of the Holy Spirit. In essence, in Revelation, you get an unholy trinity, the dragon and these two beasts, replacing the holy trinity, saying, we will set ourselves up, or Satan will set himself up as God 
in mocking the Holy Trinity of God. And so the Antichrist works in the activity of Satan, in the power of Satan. Finally, in verse 10, the Antichrist will come with all the deception of wickedness. All deception of wickedness. So you can put every kind of deception of wickedness. We see, and we know from Scripture, Ephesians 4, Hebrews 3, that sin, by its very nature, is deceitful. Wickedness, by its very nature, is deceitful. It is a lie. And it makes sense because Satan is the father of lies. And so the Antichrist will come with every deception of sin. You can almost put it this way. He will come on a wave of wickedness, flooding the earth with lies. But I think more we can put it this way. Instead of a wave of wickedness, I think you can almost say it's like a tide. It's a tide of wickedness, a tide of deception, a tide of lies. And maybe you'll agree with me that I think we see it coming in. The level of lawlessness, this man of lawlessness... Jesus says that lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. We talked about it last week. That I think we're seeing that, that this increase, this tide rising of lawlessness and wickedness and deception. And if you, ever, if you think, well, I don't know about that, Josh, watch the news. Look at what people say. Look at, look at social media and look and see how profoundly deceived people are. You see testimonies from people saying, Sex and gender is only a construct. You ever thought about the level of deception that requires? To look at biology straight on and say, no. To look at genetics, to look at all these things and say, no, that is a profound level of deception. Before we say, oh boy, those people are messed up. That is, that is but by the grace of God, we will all go headlong into deception. As I said, sin by its very nature is deceiving. Think about your sin and the lie that you believe when you commit it. This will fulfill me. This will make me happy. This will work. This is the answer. And how often is it the answer? Never. And yet you believe it. You trick yourself. If I commit this sin, then I will able to, it'll be a solution. It'll, be, it'll get me there. It'll help me. It, it, I need it. I need it. You never need it. You're deceived. So can you imagine as the earth, the tide of, of wickedness and evil and really deception rises in this world, more and more we're seeing what I'm going to say to the redeemed conscience, to the redeemed mind is absurdity. I know there's some danger when I, when I say things like this that you think, oh, Josh is preaching out of the newspaper again. But we need to be very careful that we call truth, truth, and lies, lies. That we don't just say, well, this is just a crazy moment. Those, those, those 2020s are just crazy. We'll come back to our senses. We need to understand that this is the darkening of the unregenerate mind. I think we are seeing being played out Romans chapter 1 that God is giving them over to the depraved mind such that they can't define what a woman is or what a man is, what the difference is. 
They, 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 they say things like, children can choose their own sex. It's insanity. Why? Because that is what our mind does. When we give ourselves to wickedness, when we give ourselves to sin, we go further and further and further into nonsense. You may have seen in your own life. How did I end up here? I must have been in some sort of sugar coma or something. I don't know how I ended up in this place. That wasn't me. Your mind, you're just giving yourself over to the sin and it just snowballs and goes to further and further deception and you end up where you did not expect. So I think we're seeing this more and more. This man of lawlessness, as I said last time, will not, not be an aberration from the norm. He not, he's not going to stand up and say, hey, let's everyone do what is right in his own eyes. Let's just have a, light, a world full of lawlessness. And people will be like, this guy is crazy. They're going to be like, yes, there he is. This guy has the answer. He's appealing to my selfish desires to give reign to my evil desires. So people will be deceived by the signs and wonders, but they will also be deceived by the rampant wickedness. If everyone in your community is giving themselves over to wickedness, is giving themselves uh, over to uh, abandoning uh, 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 truth and justice and and, uh, God's moral law, then how likely are you to join them? This is one of the dangers of our culture. Who you hang out with, who your kids hang out with. If they are surrounded, if you're surrounded by people that say, there is no God, I am God. Even though you say, oh, I'm a Christian, you're going to have that, you're going to be stronger and stronger pulled toward that, that way of thinking. Even if you try to do it in a Christian way, oh, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm going to still dabble in this secular thought. Dangerous. And to up the ante, to make it worse, look at the next verse 11. The, the Antichrist will come with this tide of wickedness and deception. And look what God responds with. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. What? This rising tide of wickedness and deception and this, this really this, this flood of lies over all the earth and God responds this way? I think this is really what Romans 1 is saying. Listen to Romans 1 and hear the similarities. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I think that's what we're talking about. Their speculations, their heart, they become foolishness, and they're going into insanity, absurdity. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Oh, I'm a biologist. I can define what a woman is. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, look what God does. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That could be the summary statement of the Antichrist on the scene. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie, 
of the Antichrist and worshiping and serving the creature, the Antichrist, rather than the creator. For this reason, again, God gives them over to degrading passions, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, here's one of the main reasons why I think we are seeing it. As this riding tide of lawlessness and wickedness and deception and lies covers the earth, you say, well, how is this different, Josh? This has happened through the many years. I don't know. You're, this kind of uh, brinkmanship, this, this imminency, it's, it's almost, almost here. Uh, here's why I think we're seeing it. This verse 26 and 27, the, the, the rise and the, the, the um, applauding and, and promoting of homosexuality is a sign that God has given us over, I think, to degrading passions, given the world over to degrading passions, and it's evidenced by the rise of homosexuality. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. I think we're seeing the depraved mind being played out on the, on the worldwide stage. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And I think that's another indication. How often do you see hearty approval to sin? This list of sins. I think if you're on social media, you see it every day. Hearty approval to this dethroning of God, in essence. So we have a description of the Antichrist. He opposes God. He exalts himself above God. He takes his seat in the temple of God. He displays himself as God. He works by Satan's power, and he deceives by wickedness. A few points of application, and we'll be done. Number one, Christian, be watchful, be sober. As we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said, You do not know the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the light, so be watchful, be sober, be like those who live in the day, not those who get drunk at night. What I mean by that is don't be obsessed with end times prophecy, always trying to focus and, oh, I've got to figure out the code and what's happening here in the, 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 the war with Hamas. And don't be so obsessed with that and focus on that. But at the same time, don't ignore the signs altogether. I think sometimes people make the opposite mistake. Oh, I'm not, a, I'm not my dad or whoever. My, they're obsessed with end time stuff. Well, I'm going to go and not even look at it at all. Go as far as the Bible does. Paul would have us, God would have us recognize the Antichrist when he comes. Jesus would have us recognize the Antichrist when he comes. Jesus tells us, after describing the end times, he says in Matthew 24, 25, Behold, I have told you in advance. That's not just Jesus saying, when it happens, you'll be like, uh, you'll understand that I told you so. No, Jesus is saying, I've told you in advance so that when it happens, you'll say, ah, yes. That's what Jesus said. So you can watch for it. You can recognize it. When the abomination of desolation is set up, you flee to the hills. That's number one, Christian, be watchful, be sober. Number two, the Christian apologist Cornelius Van Til put it this way, the choice is always autonomy or theonomy. That's always the choice, autonomy or theonomy. 
Autonomy means self-rule. Theonomy means God rule. That's the choice before all of us. Are you going to be autonomous? Are you going to be theonomous? Are you going to be self-ruled, ruled by yourself? Are you going to be ruled by God? We can look at the Antichrist and say, man, that guy is way out in left field. But often we fall afoul the same thing, don't we? Where we, we, we set ourselves up as rulers and our rule, our, our selfish desires, uh, when we give rein to them, opposes God and, ex- and we exalt ourselves over him. Isn't that the, the deceitfulness of sin? Remember that when we choose sin, we are choosing ourselves over God. God has said, thou shalt not. God has said, thou shalt. God has said, I alone am, uh, am worthy of worship and praise. And we say, no, I am as well. Or I am above you. I will sin and I will serve myself and I will exalt myself over you. Apart from the gracious work of God, this is the state of the human heart. We exalt our self-rule. We raise ourselves up. And we can affect to serve certain things. We can say, oh, I serve God, or I serve my fellow man. I can do all these things. And we can pretend, we can put on this front of serving other things, but really we're serving other things so that we are, so that the ultimate end is serving ourselves, so that we feel good, or so that people will recognize us. Or we serve God so that he gives us things, kind of the prosperity gospel. The Bible says, put to death this spirit of the Antichrist within you. What is the spirit of the Antichrist? Self-rule. James 4 puts it this way. James 4, 6 and 7. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is it to be double-minded? To attempt this worship, this submission to God, and at the same time, this worship and submission to yourself. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Instead, be single-minded. Pursue submission. Pursue uh, uh, prostration at the throne of God, before the throne of God, submitting to God, humbling yourself before him. That That is the only way of salvation for any man, to humble ourselves before the throne of God and to only approach, to understand our only approach is through Jesus Christ. So really, our humbling ourselves before the throne of God is trusting in Jesus Christ or putting our faith in his work on the cross. In fact, putting your faith in Jesus Christ is the ultimate self-denial. You say, I cannot do it. I have nothing to commend myself to God. I have nothing to show that is good. I cannot come to the throne and say, look at this, look at this ledger, God, of my actions over the last 50 years. 60, 70, 80 years. Look at this. Aren't you impressed? We know that were we to open the book and show it to God, he would be wrathful. And he would damn us. But we don't even need to open the book to, the, to God. He, the book of our lives is already open to him. 
So we understand the only way that we can be reconciled to our holy creator is to deny self-rule and to embrace heartily theonomy, God rule in Jesus Christ. I am a wretched sinner. And so I am humble, humbled by that. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. It is only by grace that you are saved. It is only by grace that you are reconciled to him, that you escape the wrath of God on all sinners. We see there at the end of verse 10, it says, with all the deception of wickedness, or in the middle of verse 10, for those who perish. Would you want to be among those who perish? Would you want to be blown over by the wave of wickedness, to be, to be knocked over by the rising tide of lies and deception, evil in this world, and the end being perishing? Would you want to be among those who perish? No? The only way for you to escape is to submit to God and his Christ, and you will not be deceived by the devil and his Christ. The devil's Christ is the Antichrist. Submit to God and his, his Messiah, his chosen one, his means of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, and you will not be among those who perish. Embrace the true son of God as your only hope of being reconciled to the only God of gods. And we will look more at this, I think, in a couple of sermons. But look at the end of verse 10. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Instead, verse 12, they did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. What would you have? Would you take pleasure in wickedness and so be damned along with the Antichrist? Or would you have a love of the truth? The truth as ultimately expressed in Jesus Christ. Do you love the truth? Do you cherish it? This is only, as we see here in verse 10, given. They did not receive the love of the truth. Well, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But do you have a love of the truth in that you see Jesus as true, you see him as your only hope, and you heartily embrace him with your heart and your affections? You love him. Or are you turning aside to selfish ambition to selfish desires and taking pleasure in wickedness. That's going to be the distinction there at the end. And I think increasingly as this tide of wickedness rises in our world, more and more the Christian should look weird. Weirder and weirder and weirder. As the world goes this way, the Christian should go this way. And they stick out. And people, and I think this is where the persecution is going to come. People say, get your head down. No, I don't want you there. Your, your very presence is a prick on my conscience. You're not participating with us. I must bring you down. But if you love the truth, you will stand up and say, take my head off. Take my life. Persecute me. Chase me to the ends of the earth. I will never give Christ up. Never give him up. Because I love him. He's the truth. As we transition to a time of communion, the deacons, if you will go prepare the elements.
Our taking the Lord's Supper is a declaration of the truth. This blood, this blood of Christ, this broken body of Jesus Christ is my treasure, is my hope. His death in place of my death, apart from his sacrificial death on the cross, there is no hope. So when we hold the wine and we hold the bread and we partake of both, we are saying, herein lies my salvation. In this broken body, broken for me. In this shed blood, shed for me. Herein is my salvation. And we're doing it with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're looking at each other and saying, we are one in Jesus Christ due to his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. So I encourage you, as you take the elements, to do those two things. Remember the body and blood broken and shed for you. Remember that's your hope, that's your salvation. And as you eat it, remember that Jesus' death, his life and death for you is your spiritual food and drink. You don't just look at the cross all those years ago and say, that happened then, that's nice. But God still is here for you in his spirit, nourishing you in the gospel, nourishing you in the word of God. So that as you eat and drink, thank Jesus, John 6, is my food. He's not just my savior for eternity. He is my nourishment. He is my life. He is my food and drink now. And the second thing to think about is the corporate element. So if you have something against your brother and sister, if you live in such a way that you deny the very gospel that you are proclaiming in this communion by hatred for your brother or sister, animosity, some unresolved tension, fighting between you. Go to your brother and sister. Wrap your arms around him and say, forgive me, I repent. I would take the, the bread and the, bo- the, the body and the blood, the bread and the wine in good conscience, having no strife with my brothers or sisters. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, is the cup not the one cup that we drink of? Do we not all drink of one cup? Do we not all partake of one body? That's Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. This is a corporate element. We take this to remember our place with God in his son, Jesus Christ. But we also take it to remember our place within the body of Christ. That's why Paul says in in chapter 11, you've already eaten and you're drunk when you come? Can't you eat and drink at home? The point is to come together to eat and drink the body and blood of Christ as one. So wait for one another. Love on one another. Repent to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Draw close to one another in your common Savior. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not put your faith in him, you are still riding that tide of wickedness. You have not rejected wickedness. You have not embraced Jesus as the love of your life, as the, as the only true source of, of, of salvation. We ask you to let the, the elements pass you by. Let the bread and the wine pass you by. If you already have them, we ask that you not partake of them. This, this ordinance, this sacrament is for believers, for Christians those who have placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation. You're not trusting to your works. You're not trusting to being a good person. You're not trusting to, um, because you're raised 
in the church. You're not trusting because you're baptized as a baby. You're not trusting to church membership. You're trusting in Christ alone to save you from sin, death, and hell. If that's you, partake with joy. Partake in hope. That God who promised is faithful. He has saved you. He is saving you. And oh yes, he will save you. Anyone still need the wine or the bread? And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Father, we praise you and thank you for the broken body of our Savior Jesus Christ broken in our place, that we eat, celebrating our salvation in him. We also eat understanding him as our nourishment, that we not only live by Christ in escaping death, but we live daily, we walk in Christ. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Father, we thank you for the precious blood of our Savior spilled for us out of a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. that we can approach your throne through his flesh, through his blood, being the perfect sacrifice for us. Help us, Father, recognize as Christians the evil that is coming, to not be afraid, not be shaken, 
thrown off, disturbed. Because we have what this bread and wine symbolize. We have our Savior, broken and bloodshed for us, but resurrected to your right hand. They are now interceding for us. And as verse 8 points out, he will come and slay this evil one, this lawless one, with the breath of his mouth. We have nothing to fear. So, Father, as the wickedness rises, as persecution rises, we acknowledge that we will not stand unless you make us stand. We will not stand unless you give us strength. Fire up in us this love for the truth. Fire up in us this love and affection for our Savior Jesus Christ so that when all the world, if all the world stands opposite us and offers us all the riches, everything that the world has to offer, as Satan offered Christ all the kingdoms and the riches in this world. That we look at that and we say, Jesus is better. The only way we can do that is just for you to give us, by your spirit, as you have promised to give us, love for him, affection for him, a clear vision of his beauty, his glory, the love that you have for us in him, so we never get over it. We are taken by it for all eternity. And though we lose everything in this world, we have gained our sweet Savior. Father, if there's somebody here who does not have that love for Jesus, have not embraced him as Savior, see him as their greatest treasure, show them, Father, that they are bound for deception on a grand scale that they could easily fall prey to these false signs and wonders and, and follow after this Antichrist, which only leads in destruction. So, Father, convict them of sin. Give them this love for the truth. Show them their abject need of salvation, that the wickedness is already in their hearts, just waiting to be given this outlet, this, this restrainer to be removed, and the Antichrist comes on the scene and God gives the world over to the deluding influence and gives them over to debased mind. Father, show them that their only hope of escaping this dreadful judgment is embracing your son, Jesus Christ, by faith, repenting of their sins, and submitting to him as their Lord. Do that in them, Father. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.